morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording in my home office. We call it the Castle here in the north part of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, got a lot to talk about today. Got, let's see here, 16 pages of uh, criminal justice fuckery ripe for discussion. Uh, but first, welcome to 2021, our first podcast of January. do have some podcast notes to go over. Uh, first, Mike the Sound Guy and I have uh, parted ways. Well, we're not parted ways. We're on a hiatus of sorts. Uh, we did record a November 1st podcast that you'll notice has not been released. Uh, I pestered him about editing the audio, and basically he's got a lot going on. So... I will be editing these myself going forward. I apologize in advance. There's a lot of stuff that I'm uh, learning. I've, I've done it before. I mean, I've edited a few of the podcasts in the past. Those of you who are OG listeners may recall there was actually a time where I accidentally deleted the entire podcast, so I had to record the podcast twice and then edit it because I didn't know what I was doing. But I'm getting better. I've been fussing around. So, uh, you know, let me know your thoughts on tweaks that need to be made, but that will be the thing going forward. This will be a, uh, a solo production. Among the things that have happened since the last podcast we released is that apparently a lot of the podcast apps now have their own directories, more so than we had before. So if you don't see us on your podcast app of choice, leave a comment on this episode or send me a direct message on Twitter or a message on Patreon and I will work to get them all added in. The 11-1 podcast will be released hopefully soon. I just have to work up the willpower to listen to myself talk for the, an hour to, to go through and figure out what needs to be edited. Uh, also, several patrons had asked about a, a Fisk patron-only Twitter account where basically y'all would be able to interact with me outside of my main Twitter and the podcast Twitter because main Twitter, of course, has too many people for y'all to reach me, and the podcast Twitter is more or less dormant. Uh, I am open to that conceptually. I, I realize that's kind of a public, uh, not public, a common-ish thing now with folks using Substack and, and protected Twitter feeds and so on. Uh, if that's something you want, let me know. But more importantly, if there's a way to mechanically do it, uh, I don't know how to do it so that you know we add in the new patrons other than them trying to add me and I manually add them, but then the, removing the folks who don't want to be patrons anymore. Uh, it just kind of sounds like a royal pain in the ass. But if that's something y'all are super stoked about having, uh, let me know. Speaking of Patreon, they have also added new options. Uh, one of them is annual memberships. I, I don't think we're going to do that because to do that, I'm required to charge you up front. Uh, right now, basically, those of you that when you just signed up, you got your first month, half month, whatever, free. You didn't get charged until the first of the month after you became a patron. To do an annual membership, I have to change that. So the instant you join, you end up paying. And I, I feel uncomfortable with that because our content is not butterflies and rainbows. So I don't want to charge someone for an annual membership. They start listening to the patron-only episodes and everything else and decide that, oh, yeah, this sucks. Never mind. Uh, but that's there. I'm marinating on it. The cool part, though, is that they have automated merchandise processing. So if you all have merch ideas that you want, let me know. My, uh, my default thoughts, of course, are coffee mugs because everyone has coffee mugs. 
and maybe a t-shirt with the logo on the front and the five rules on the back. But I'm open to other stuff. Just keep in mind, I have zero artistic talent. And, uh, you know, if it's something we can do, I'll work with Patreon to figure out how to do it so that will all be automated for you. I just has to be within my skills, my capacity. Uh, speaking of skills, in addition to the 11-1 podcast that is still MIA, uh, we did do our very first YouTube video ever on the post-election electoral vote counting process back in November. I suspect most of you have already seen it. If you haven't, go check it out. It's, it's kind of a moot point now because everything that I said in it actually happened. Uh, but it was very controversial because at the time it was released, a lot of Trump supporters swore that Donald Trump was going to continue to be our president. So it ended up, we had over 135,000 views. Uh, shout out to Legal Eagle if he is listening for the boost. A lot of them were his uh, his subscribers. But there were almost 3,000 comments. Now, a lot of them have been deleted. I checked before this particular episode. We are down to 2,787 comments on this one video. The only video I have done of my, you know, that I did myself since law school. So we had one we released in 2016 that was put together by a classmate. And then the only other YouTube stuff on my channel is, is my trial team stuff back in 2012. So that one video became just this roiling controversy. And at the time, I couldn't figure out how to turn off the email notifications. So I got several thousand messages, emails from YouTube saying, oh, you have a new comment from so-and-so. But I noticed a lot of them have gotten deleted after Biden has been sworn in. So feel free to check it out if you haven't already. Uh, and then, of course, the thrice-weekly Twitch game night is still proceeding as planned. So if you are free on Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday uh, at 9 to 11... Oh, gosh, sorry, I just dropped one of my papers here. Uh, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time, then you can join us for a lot of Jackbox games and everything else. All right, so that is the podcast notes. Uh, if you have not already done so, make sure to follow us on Twitter. The Twitter account is at Fiskemall, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. The website is fiskemall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com, where you can leave us a comment. And then, of course, the Patreon page, which is where we uh, have our patron-only episodes and just general patron stuff, the finances that help pay for the uh, the hosting and everything else for the show, is patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. We usually get into the politics stuff. In the past few episodes, I have started with a coronavirus update just to kind of give you an idea of how bad things are still. The November 1st episode that is missing, you will get it. You don't have it yet. But from my notes from that episode, we were at 236,525 Americans dead, an average of 859 a day with that trend going up. Uh, that trend upwards was somewhat prophetic because we are now almost double that amount, 428,770 dead in just two months, averaging 3,182 dying per day. Now, fortunately, that number is holding flat because the post-holiday death bump is uh, dying out. People are slowly getting vaccinated, so hopefully things will, God willing, calm down. But it's bad, folks. 428,000 dead, just as a point of reference, would entail killing every single person in Durham, where I live, plus every single person in Chapel Hill, just up the street, plus every single student at NC State University in Raleigh. 
So you take out all of Durham, all of Chapel Hill, plus NC State, you would get to the number of people who have died from COVID-19 since this started. It is a fucking disgrace. So obviously a lot has happened since that last podcast. Uh, Joe Biden is now your president. Kamala Harris is your VP. They were both sworn in last Wednesday. It is the first time I have watched an entire inauguration since George W. Bush in 2000. I, uh, I didn't watch Bush's reelect. I saw Obama's oath of office, but I didn't watch the speeches beforehand or the stuff afterwards. I didn't watch Obama's reelect at all, and I didn't watch Jack shit involving Donald Trump, who was a national disgrace. Uh, so it's, you know, we're in interesting times. So, of course, that oath came two weeks after Trump supporters sacked the Capitol, the first time that the Capitol has been seized like that since the War of 1812 when the British burned it to the ground in 1814. And the only time ever in American history where Confederate flags were actually flown within the halls of the Capitol. And, of course, all these people were there to try and stage a coup on behalf of Donald Trump. Thankfully, it failed. We all kind of predicted that it would. Uh, you know, had no idea that was actually going to happen because no one figured that there would be a fucking insurrection going on. But we knew that the system was going to continue. Thankfully, it did. There were five deaths, including a police officer. A, another officer killed himself a couple days later. So blue lives matter, indeed. We know how much the uh, Trump people care about that. And the police brutality mega thread stopped updating that back in November because, frankly, I didn't have the uh, bandwidth to keep tracking that stuff all the fucking time. But guess what? That shit's still going. And the last story we have in this particular episode would be the new entry if uh, I was still keeping track of it. So that just kind of sets the table for what we're dealing with. Let's hop into the criminal justice fuckery. We always start with court news. There's a new opinion from the Ninth Circuit. I'm not going to go into detail with it because it's short and it's only four pages. And it's just on the, the banality of evil, how boring evil is. It is a case about a mentally ill and blind man sentenced to nine years in prison because he didn't tell the cops quickly enough that he was homeless. He was required to register his address. He lost where he was living, became homeless. He had five days to tell the cops he was homeless, and he didn't. So they prosecuted him, and he's now going to prison for nine years. Our system is so deeply fucked, it's tough to put it into words. Mentally ill blind man given nine years, affirmed by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, because he didn't tell the cops he was homeless within five days. That is a fucked, fucked system. So I will give you a link to that opinion. You can read it for yourself. In general research news, there is a new study confirming that water is, in fact, wet. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It confirms that cops use disproportionate force against left-wing protesters and actually let right-wing protesters get away with comparable conduct. So from that story... It says, quote, police in the United States are three times more likely to use force against left-wing protesters than right-wing protesters, according to new data from a nonprofit that monitors political violence around the world. In the past 10 months, U.S. law enforcement agencies have used tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and beatings at a much higher percentage of Black Lives Matter demonstrations than at pro-Trump or other right-wing protests. Law enforcement officers were also more likely to use force against left-wing demonstrators whether the protests remained peaceful or not. 
The statistics, based on law enforcement responses to more than 13,000 protests across the United States since April 2020, show a clear disparity in how agencies have responded to the historic wave of Black Lives Matter protests against police violence compared with demonstrations organized by Trump supporters. The new statistics come from the U.S. Crisis Monitor, a database created this spring by researchers at Princeton and the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, ACLED, a nonprofit that has previously monitored civil unrest in the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America. Just think for a minute how utterly ridiculous it is that these multinational, uh, the NGOs, non-governmental organizations, are tracking how stuff happens in America, stuff that previously we only tracked in uh, third world countries, as it were. Uh, The researchers found that the vast majority of the thousands of protests across the United States in the past year have been peaceful, and that most protests by both the left and the right were not met with any violent response by law enforcement. Police used tear gas, rubber bullets, beatings with batons, and other force against demonstrators at 511 left-wing protests and 33 right-wing protests since April, according to the updated data made public this week. Now, I'm just going to say, that's wrong. I, I know that's wrong because the police brutality mega thread was at something like 987 discrete instances plus 2,000-ish videos, and that was as of November. So this is not a comprehensive database by any stretch, but at the very least, you're at 13,000 independently verified discrete instances. Uh, That's still quite a bit of data. So you can still get the information that you need out of that. Uh, The disparity in police response only grew when comparing peaceful left-wing versus right-wing protests. Looking at the subset of protests in which demonstrators did not engage in any violence, vandalism, or looting, law enforcement officers were about 3.5 times more likely to use force against left-wing protests than right-wing protests. ACLED's data also shows that U.S. law enforcement agencies were more likely to intervene in left-wing versus right-wing protests in general and more likely to use force when they intervened. American law enforcement agencies made arrests or other interventions in 9% of the 10,863 Black Lives Matter and other left-wing protests between the 1st of April and the 8th of January, compared with only 4% of the 2,295 right-wing protests. Half of the time, police made any intervention into a left-wing protest and involved using violent force, ACLED found, compared with only about a third of the time for right-wing protests. Uh, So TLDR, no shit. Water is also wet, but I suppose it is good to have the data. In our state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, we will start, as always, in California. I suppose not always, but it's a lot. So if it's not Alabama or Arizona, we're usually in Cali to start out. In Los Angeles, this is a long read. So this one stretches across multiple pages, but it is a, it's a story about a skateboarder who was more or less kidnapped by Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The reason why it matters is that the cops who kidnapped this kid for no reason were also the cops who killed a guy in June. So from that story, it says, quote, Jesus Alegria was skateboarding with some friends at a Compton Park on an afternoon in April When Deputy Miguel Vega and his partner Chris Hernandez pulled up, hands on their holsters, the deputies approached a group of teens, Alegria, 24, and his friends shouted at them to stop harassing the kids. 
The deputies rounded on them and words were exchanged. Vega suddenly grabbed Allegria's wrists and shoved him into the back of the patrol car. The deputy didn't handcuff him and didn't ask Allegria's name. The wild minutes that followed ended with Allegria bleeding from the head and eventually triggered a criminal investigation into the deputies who also face a civil lawsuit filed by Allegria that alleges they kidnapped him and then lied to cover up their actions. This newspaper's account, this is from the LA Times, this account is of what happened is based on interviews with Allegria, his father and others, as well as the lawsuit, video footage, I'm going to put an asterisk by this because again, bystanders point out that the cops are lying, uh, and law enforcement and medical records. Lawyers for the deputies declined to discuss the case. Los Angeles County Sheriff's officials did not answer questions about Allegria's claims, leaving it unclear whether the department even challenges his account of what happened. A spokesman for the Sheriff's Department confirmed Friday that Vega and Hernandez are under criminal investigation. Sheriff's officials have also not explained why it took more than two months to open an investigation into the incident and nearly eight months before Vega and Hernandez were stripped of their badges. That timing meant Vega and Hernandez were still on the streets one night in June when they came upon 18-year-old Andres Guardado and Vega killed him in a controversial shooting that led to widespread protests and remains under investigation. It's because the guy was on his knees with his hands behind his head and the police officer shot him repeatedly in the back. Spoiler alert. Uh, the Times reported last month that Vega and Hernandez had been relieved of duty pending the outcome of the investigation into the incident, but the details of what occurred have not been reported. As Vega drove off from Wilson Park, Allegria sat in the car's hard plastic backseat without handcuffs and without a seatbelt, a violation of department policy. The deputies taunted him, subquote, we're going to go get you set up right now, one said, telling him they were going to kick him out of the car in a neighborhood controlled by a gang and tell people on the street that he belonged to the Bananas, a rival gang. That is a hilarious gang name, BT Dubs. Uh, a few minutes later, the deputies spotted a group of young teenagers on their bikes. Vega hit the gas and steered toward them. The boys scattered. Hernandez jumped out of the car to chase some of the teens on foot. Vega sped off down an alley after one of them. Allegria noticed the deputy didn't broadcast anything over the car's radio about the chase. The alley narrowed. Up ahead, the biker threaded past a parked car and a concrete wall. Allegria didn't think Vega would clear the tight space. Surprise, he didn't. Vega accelerated, but then the SUV smashed into the wall and the parked BMW. Allegria's head slammed into the cage divider. Unable to open the door, Vega climbed out of his window and onto the hood of the car, looking left and right. Still, he didn't say anything into his radio. The deputy jumped down and opened the back door. Allegria begged him to let him leave, promising not to tell anyone what happened. Get the fuck out of here, Officer Vega said. As Allegria walked away, he realized blood was dripping down his face from a gash on his eyebrow. That was as a result of him slamming into the cage. He pulled his shirt up over his face and pressed it against the wound as he walked out of the alley and around the corner. A family unloading groceries from their car gave him water and let him use his phone to call his father because his belongings were still in his backpack at the skate park. A California Highway Patrol officer responded to the scene. Vega told him he had been chasing a man with a gun on a bike, but acknowledged he hadn't activated his lights and sirens. The deputy estimated he had been driving 30 to 35 miles an hour in the alley, when in fact it was 55 to 65 miles an hour. 
The CHP officer wrote in his report that Vega caused the crash by traveling at a subquote unsafe speed above 35 miles an hour through the alleyway, where the speed limit was only 15 miles an hour. By the time Allegria's father arrived, deputies had blocked off the street and a helicopter hovered overhead. As Allegria walked towards his dad, a deputy instead grabbed him and put him in handcuffs. Allegria asked why. Subquote, I don't know. I'm going to find out right now, the deputy said, putting him in the back of another patrol car. Every 10 minutes or so, a deputy asked if Allegria needed medical attention, and each time he said he did, nothing was done. After about 40 minutes, paramedics arrived and took him to a hospital. Deputies followed the ambulance and crowded around him as hospital staff tended to Allegria. As they put a few stitches in his forehead, doctors and nurses seemed to sense something was off and started writing Allegria notes so the deputies couldn't see. At one point, a deputy refused to move when a nurse told him to get out of the way. A deputy pressed his ticket book toward Allegria, demanding he sign a citation to appear in court. Allegria asked what crime he had committed, but the deputy wouldn't answer and kept the part of the paper that noted the offense concealed beneath the book's thick band. He said only that he wouldn't leave until Allegria signed it. At some point, Allegria grabbed the book out of the deputy's hand and saw he was being cited for being under the influence of methamphetamines. Incredulous, Allegria asked hospital staff for a drug test, but was told they couldn't perform one. In the arrest report, Officer Vega wrote that when he and Hernandez first encountered Allegria, he was acting erratically, swearing, sweating, and grinding his teeth and appeared to be under the influence of a stimulant. The deputy said he and his partner had been unable to conduct a sobriety test because a subquote large crowd was advancing toward them, and he feared the group would attempt to aid Allegria. Vega wrote that they had to flee without handcuffing Allegria or securing his seatbelt in order to find a safe location where they could continue their investigation. But, asterisk, a video recorded by one of Allegria's friends calls Vega's account into question. Surprise. The footage shows a fence separated Allegria's friends from the deputies. Allegria appears fine, and in the video, Vega does not rush as he closes the back passenger door and walks calmly to the driver's door. In his arrest report, Vega said Allegria continued to be belligerent in the SUV, and he and Hernandez decided to take him to a sheriff's jail to complete the sobriety test. Vega made no mention of chasing a bicyclist with a gun. Instead, he wrote that he simply crashed while transporting Allegria, and added that the report the CHP officer filed about the crash had more information. Allegria's lawsuit accuses the deputies of fabricating the drug charge and the arrest report to justify their recklessness. Subquote, it's clearly a cover-up, said Miriam Dan... Dan I'm going to butcher her name and I apologize. Danielian, I think is how it's pronounced. Or Danielian, I'm not sure. I'm sorry if she happens to be listening. Uh, an attorney representing Allegria. Uh, the deputies, subquote, just kidnapped him, his father said. Based on Vega's account, the sheriff's department took the case to the district attorney's office, but prosecutors declined to file charges. In a memo explaining the decision, a prosecutor wrote that there was, subquote, insufficient evidence to prove identification, an acknowledgment that they wouldn't even be able to prove in court that Allegria was the one person allegedly high on drugs. For more than two months afterward, Vega and Hernandez went about their jobs patrolling in and around Compton. On a night in June, they came upon 18-year-old Andres Guardado as he was talking with someone outside an auto body shop. Guardado allegedly brandished a gun and ran into an alley, according to a Sheriff's Department account of the shooting. Vega and Hernandez gave chase, 
and Vega shot Guardado five times in the back, an autopsy concluded. Now, I'm not going to get into the Guardado case because that's its own separate thicket of mess, but their own lawyer admits that Guardado ran into an alley, got on his knees, had his hands behind his head. They claim that he lunged for his gun that he had put on the ground as he was trying to be arrested, but given that shots were in the guy's back, that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense because if he's facing the police with his gun on the ground... That wouldn't have happened. So anyway, needless to say, these guys have been put on paid leave. They're under criminal investigation. And they kidnapped one kid, murdered another. And that's where we are in Los Angeles. So as part of that, our second story, also in Los Angeles, California's top prosecutor opened an investigation on Friday into the scandal-plagued Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Probing accusations, the agency had engaged in a long pattern of excessive force, illegal shootings, and abuse of jail inmates. The civil rights probe follows years of allegations that the nation's largest local law enforcement agency was rife with abuse throughout its ranks that top supervisors tolerated and in some cases covered up. Subquote, there are serious concerns and reports that accountability and adherence to legitimate policing practices have lapsed at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. We are undertaking this investigation to determine if LASD has violated the law or the rights of the people of Los Angeles County, California Attorney General Xavier Becerra said. Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who has at times sparred with county leaders over the management and direction of the department, said in a written statement that he looked forward to the probe. Subquote, our department may finally have an impartial objective assessment of our operations and recommendations on any areas we can improve our service to the community, Villanueva's statement said. Subquote, during my administration, we have routinely asked the state office of the attorney general to monitor our investigations, and we will provide immediate access to all information in our possession. We are eager to get this process started in the interest of transparency and accountability. Uh, we'll see how eager that continues as the investigation happens to go on, because uh, the story continues, quote, in 2013, the Federal Bureau of Investigation charged 18 Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies, including two high-ranking supervisors, with attempting to thwart a federal probe into abuse in the nation's largest jail system. Then-Sheriff Lee Baca was among those convicted in the case and sentenced to prison. So fun times in L.A., still in California, Spring Valley Lake, we have a third rule of Fisk situation. The third rule is that there are no new stories, just new names and new jurisdictions. And here, an elderly woman called police to report a potential burglar. Cops showed up and shot her dead. From that story, it says, quote, A 91-year-old woman who was allegedly armed with a shotgun and shot by deputies outside her Spring Valley Lake home Saturday morning succumbed to her injuries Monday morning, authorities said. San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department spokesperson Jody Miller said Betty Francois was pronounced dead at the hospital at 6.15 a.m. Francois was shot after deputies responded to a 911 call just after 9.30 a.m. Saturday regarding, subquote, unknown subjects attempting to break into a home in the 17800 block of Sunburst Road. Miller confirmed Monday evening that Francois made that 911 call. Sheriff's officials said deputies arrived and Francois allegedly exited the home still holding her shotgun. Subquote, deputies gave her commands to drop the gun. Then she pointed the gun at the deputies and a deputy involved shooting occurred, sheriff's officials said. Susan DeLimas, a relative of Francois, told the Daily Press on Monday that the woman was legally blind and deaf. Delimas, a member of the New Hampshire House of Representatives, described Francois as a, subquote, precious and petite little lady. 
So, quote, she was born in 1929, and the police felt so threatened by her that they had to shoot her dead, Delima said. So, call police for help. They say challenge accepted and will protect and serve the fuck out of you. Uh, in Washington, D.C., so we got two stories related to the Capitol riot from uh, the MAGA mob. I'm not going to go into too much detail on the first one. It is a profile on Eugene Goodman, who is the black Capitol Police officer who led the MAGA mob away from the open Senate doors where senators were gathering. You have probably seen the video of it. Basically, the guy discovers that these are all a bunch of unmitigated fucking racists, and all he has to do is taunt them a little bit to get them to follow him instead of going to their target, which is how fucking stupid these people are. Uh, But I'm mentioning him specifically because he did the sort of police work that I want to see police do. And so people who listen to this podcast, and I, I should put listen in quotes, people who hate listen to this podcast, the ones who listen solely that they can bitch that I have it and explain how I'm so unfair to police all the time, they say that I have an impossibly high standard for the job. I don't. I just want y'all to be more like Goodman. So if you watch that video, he has situational awareness. He didn't use excessive force. He lightly pushes one guy just enough to piss him off to get the mob to start chasing them. He actually protected and served the, uh, protected and served protected and served the people he's supposed to protect and serve. And then when it was done, he's like, yo, I'm just trying to do my job. He didn't go on the local news and call himself a hero and demand blowjobs for the work. He just did what he was supposed to do. And he got promoted for it, as he should have. So kudos to that guy. To other people who want to complain about this podcast, just have your officers be more like him. That entire scenario, which we've now all seen on video, is exactly what I expect police to do. That is what they are paid to do. The fact that they don't do that more often is the entire fucking problem. Speaking of, as part of the Capitol raid, we have another third rule of fist situation. No new, uh, no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, During the chaos at the Capitol, overwhelmed police officers confronted and combated a frenzied sea of rioters who transformed the seat of democracy into a battlefield. Now, police chiefs across the country are confronting the uncomfortable reality that members of their own ranks were among the mob that faced off against other law enforcement officers. Surprise. Uh, It continues, quote, At least 13 off-duty law enforcement officials are suspected of taking part in the riot. I'm going to note that is the Washington Post's way of just being overly cautious so they don't get sued. We know for a fact, having seen the videos, that there are, in fact, at least 13. There's actually close to uh, 30 at this point based on data compiled by the folks on Twitter. But just know, at least 13 so far are suspected of taking part in the riot. Quote, a tally that could grow as investigators continue to pour over footage and records to identify participants. Police leaders are turning in their own to the FBI and taking the striking step of reminding officers in the departments that criminal misconduct could push them off the force and behind bars. The fact that is a striking step is striking. I'm going to put it that way. Story continues. Subquote, we are making clear that they have First Amendment rights like all Americans, said Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo, who on Thursday accepted the resignation of an 18-year veteran in his department because of the veteran's involvement in the riot which followed a rally at which President Trump urged his supporters to not accept his defeat. 
Subquote, however, engaging in activity that crosses the line into criminal conduct will not be tolerated. The revelation that officers participated in the chaos was the latest hit for law enforcement's reputation, coming on the heels of a year in which police violence spurred nationwide protests and activists called for cutting police funding. As photographs and videos of some off-duty officers at the riot emerged on social media, some residents back home felt betrayed, while police officials worried about a black eye for the entire profession's credibility. Let me pause here. I don't know why. This stuff has been happening near daily since at least 2014. We're constantly told that they're concerned this is going to be yet another black eye for the entire profession's credibility, and yet they keep doing it. So obviously, it's not that big of a fucking deal, because if it were, they would stop. And this whole concern about cutting police funding, the only jurisdictions that cut police funding cut all funding because of the pandemic. It turns out in those same jurisdictions, police funding is now a bigger percentage of the budget than it was before this shit started. So it's like we're in this weird situation where they have to say they're concerned because they know that politically the ground has shifted a bit, but not shifted enough where they're actually going to change their fucking behavior. Uh, story continues, quote, In Rocky Mount, Virginia, the presence of two officers in the riot, which included displays of the Confederate battle flag, came to light after a colleague and another city official leaked photos of them inside the Capitol to an area activist. Pause again. This illustrates my point. If it actually were that much of a problem, they'd have said this shit openly. They would have done it themselves instead of giving it to an area activist to bring up. The president, sorry, continuing, quote, the president of the local Black Lives Matter chapter posted them on her Facebook page, and one of the officers quickly defended himself and threatened future violence. Officer Thomas Robertson, 47, and fellow officer Jacob Fracker, 27, were both arrested Wednesday by the FBI and are so far the only law enforcement officers facing federal charges, which include one count each of subquote, knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building or grounds without lawful authority and one count each of, subquote, violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. A Washington Post analysis shows that at least 29 current and former officers were at the rally, with some proceeding to the Capitol, according to a review of officers' social media accounts, FBI reports, and news reports. Of those, at least 13 officers are confirmed to be under investigation for their participation in the rioting, as well as more than a dozen Capitol Police officers who may have assisted the mob that seized the Capitol. The officers, and at least one police chief, came from tiny departments with less than a handful of officers, as well as large agencies with thousands on their force. Doug Griffith, president of the Houston Police Officers Union, said he had joked with Chief Acevedo about how absurd it would be for any of the department's 5,300 officers to be involved in the mob that stormed the Capitol. He said the resignation of 48-year-old Tam Pham, after being identified as having been at the Capitol, has not changed how he is communicating with his members. Griffith believes the line some officers crossed is so bright that it doesn't need to be explained to the rest of the force. Attempts to reach former officer Pham were not successful. Subquote, we took an oath to uphold the law, not to violate it. Griffith said, you have to have common sense and walk away. Think about it. There are officers being beaten. How, as an officer, do you not help out? How do you not understand that you shouldn't be there? I'm going to pause and say, quite easily. We have the fifth rule of Fisk. When people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. Because officers do shit like this regularly. They regularly rat-fuck their colleagues as long as their colleagues happen to be minorities. Story continues, quote, People living in the communities where the officers work, who have forged relationships with them, say they are disappointed and hurt, oh boo-fucking-who, 
Uh, Bridget Craighead saved videos of her dancing with Robertson, the Rocky Mount officer, at a Black Lives Matter event she organized in her Virginia hometown. She says she also became close to Officer Fracker. She was proud of the relationship they forged. I thought we would be an example for the rest of the world, Craighead said. When we left our last protest, they told us they loved us. They escorted us home. Now I feel betrayed. Fuck you. No shit, all right? The performative stuff this summer was a PR stunt. It was obvious to anyone who was paying any fucking attention. The notion that you have a video of cops playing basketball with some kids is going to change how the force works because that is the incentives we have set up in our legal system. You know, anyhow, that's it for that particular story. I will give you a link. You can read the rest. There's a lot there. Moral of the story is there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of police officers who are so fucking far gone that they traveled to D.C. to try and overthrow the government. That's on top of the normal day-to-day criminal justice fuckery happening in their own departments everywhere in the entire fucking country. Uh, In Michigan, in Detroit, we have a situation where police are trying to avoid uh, using normal ways of communicating because they don't want the public to find out what they say in response to public records requests. So from that story, it says, quote, It's a story within a story, starting with a wrongful termination lawsuit filed last year by former Michigan State Police Inspector Michael Hahn. His attorney, James Fett, requested text messages from Michigan State Police among its top leaders, including Colonel Joseph Gasper. Subquote, I only had maybe five text messages, and that's frankly unbelievable that I only have five, said Colonel Gasper in response to the request for the production of text messages. It set off alarm bells for the attorney, a four-month-long investigation into his client's employment status by his bosses yielding just a handful of texts. Fett's digging uncovered some of MSP's top brass, including the ones involved in his client's termination, had all installed a messaging application on their state-issued cell phones that wipes clean any trace of the messaging. So, quote, it's kind of alarming, Fett said. They're supposed to be transparent. They know they have an obligation under the Freedom of Information Act. The specific app is called Signal, which has end-to-end encryption software. It makes any communication on the app unavailable by the Freedom of Information Act or by attorneys for their cases. Fett, by way of the courts, acquired an admission that seven top state cops had in fact installed the software. The state attorney representing Colonel Gasper later recanted his use of Signal. The State Department of Technology Management and Budget says state employees are permitted to download apps to be used to conduct state business. The agency does not have a policy for specific apps. Subquote, whether it's illegal or not, there has not been a legal determination yet, Attorney Fitt said. This is new stuff. There has been nobody to weigh in just yet. I'm going to note, it is not related to this particular case, but it's an illustration of the problem. This is why qualified immunity is such an abomination. Technology advances faster than the case law by design. It will take years for a case to get from start to finish when you're going through multiple iterations and creations of new apps in that time span. So nothing is ever clearly established for a qualified immunity to get past that in a civil suit because of all the new shit constantly going on. So even though this is an employment lawsuit uh, at its origins, it's also a good example of why we should abolish qualified immunity. Moving over to North Carolina. Uh, Over in Asheville, we have a... Does this count as a first rule question? I don't know. See, this is the things where, like, when Mike and I were in studio, just kind of asking his feedback for this, 
This reminds me of a first rule situation. The first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. In this case, it's an email. So from that story, it says, quote, A commander with the North Carolina State Highway Patrol wants his troopers to stop being lazy. In an email sent at the start of the year, Captain Neil Denman emailed troopers he oversees in Troop G to write more speeding tickets. Troop G is headquartered in Asheville and covers most of western North Carolina, from Rutherford County to Avery County to Cherokee County. Denman's email focused on the low number of tickets written in 2020 and told supervisors in the troop they would be held accountable if their output didn't improve. Now, I'm going to pause here. Guess what happened in 2020 that affected the number of people traveling? A fucking pandemic. Surprise! Anyhow... It continues, quote, as you can see by the numbers, most members are not putting forth any enforcement effort and district supervisors are not holding their feet to the fire, the email said. In the coming weeks, that is going to change. It is time that Troop G gets back to work and the lazy troopers start earning their pay, Denman said at the end of his missive. Statewide, the North Carolina State Highway Patrol wrote 60,000 fewer tickets in 2020 than in previous years, which means a significant drop in ticket revenue for the state and the state court system. Now, this is, I've talked about this many times. I don't want to belabor the point, but you're dealing with roughly $10 million. If you assume that those 60,000 tickets plead out to the lowest dollar offense at $178 a piece. Now, there are others like DWIs that cost a lot more, but assume all of them just get pled out to a base level speeding ticket. $178 a pop, 60,000 tickets. You're looking at $10 million. Now, considering travel was substantially less due to the pandemic, it shouldn't be a surprise that the number of tickets have gone down. You have fewer people driving. You have a higher likelihood that drivers are COVID positive, so officers aren't going to want to pull them over and risk getting breathed on and breathed on. What is it? Breathed on, right? They, you know. So it's just something where common fucking sense and officer safety should take priority. COVID-19 has killed more police in the past year than all other causes combined. It is by far the top cop killer. And yet, money talks. So they want you to write more tickets, regardless of whether you're actually committing crimes. you got to write them tickets. Boost your quota output. It's fucking absurd. Over in Charlotte, we have the third rule of Fisk again. Remember, there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. As yet another black man is released from prison after being exonerated for a crime he did not, in fact, commit. From that story, it says, quote, Willie George Shaw was released from prison on Tuesday after serving nearly five years for a crime he didn't commit. Shaw's conviction was overturned in Mecklenburg County Superior Court. In 2015, Shaw, a certified nursing assistant, was accused of sexually assaulting an 86-year-old woman while helping her bathe at the Charlotte Area Assisted Living Facility where he worked. The woman was found bleeding in her bed and later died. The Duke University School of Law Wrongful Convictions Clinic, which offers resources to help fight against convictions that it believes are erroneous, filed a motion in 2019 alleging Shaw received insufficient counsel and that medical experts concluded that the injury could not have occurred at the originally specified time. A hearing in December revealed the woman's injury had occurred nearly seven hours after the alleged time. An expert in geriatric medicine also testified that there was a video of the resident after 2.45 p.m. that showed she exhibited no signs of injury. 
Shaw is the clinic's fourth client in the last two years to be exonerated, along with Charles Ray Finch and Dante Sharp in 2019 and Ronnie Long in 2020. Collectively, the four men spent more than 115 years in prison for crimes they did not commit. Totally outrageous. The fact that in this particular case, in Shaw's case, there was a video. Guy was done at 245 and no longer there at the facility. And then on the video, the woman is fine. And none of that shit comes out. They end up convicting him anyway. Like, it just, this type of stuff blows my mind that this happens. But anyhow, so props to the Duke Wrongful Convictions Clinic. They now have four people in really only two years, because we just started 2021. So four people in two years to be exonerated for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, Over in Durham, we have some interesting stuff happening here where hopefully it's going to pan out well. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, residents of four more Durham neighborhoods may see new teams of violence interrupters on the street sometime this year. After a record 318 people were shot in the Bull City last year, the Durham City Council agreed to spend $935,000 to hire more staff for the county's violence interruption and outreach team called Bull City United. City leaders voted Monday night to expand the group to four new areas with high gun-related crime. Subquote, I would love to see Bull City United teams working in every neighborhood all over the city, Mayor Pro Tem Jillian Johnson said. There's a lot of opportunity for this kind of mediation and conflict resolution. A total of 318 people were shot in Durham last year, compared to 189 people in 2019, according to Durham Police Department data. Since 2017, Bull City United staff members have worked in part of the Southside community and an area encompassing the McDougald Terrace public housing community. Now, I want you to pay attention to these next stats, because this is mind-blowing. Those two areas have seen a 1.78% decrease in gun-related crimes since 2013, compared to a citywide increase of 16.49% over the same time period, according to data presented to the city council. That is obscene. A 19% delta on gun-related crimes from this one program. I don't know why the fuck we're not rolling this out citywide already. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, The group follows the cure violence model, which treats violence like a learned behavior that spreads across a community like a disease. Staff members go where shootings take place, talk to people involved in the conflict, and try to negotiate peace. Most team members, such as current supervisor David Johnson, have been convicted of past crimes or were once incarcerated. Irving Joyner, a criminal law and procedure professor at NC Central University, I'm going to note he was my professor. I had him for civil rights and a couple other things thinks the cure violence model makes sense for Durham. Subquote, I think it's a big departure from the law enforcement model or the policing model that is typically repressive and offers a better opportunity for relief, said Joyner, who's lived in Durham for over 40 years. What is happening now does not work, he added. And at this point, given the scope of the danger that exists, you need to try different things. Now, a couple of things here. One, I, I cannot do justice to Professor Joyner's accent, so I regret that you're hearing it in my accent and not his, because his accent is amazing. Two, if I could do that that gif of the the guy slapping the desk and going, thank you, I think it's from the office, I would put that here. What is happening now does not work. You need to try different things. I, it just it, It's so revolutionary in how obvious it is. 
Now, those of you who remember back episode 37 years ago, remember there was a study done that confirmed that nonprofits in a community focused on crime-related stuff actually reduce crime more than police. The current approach here with Bull City United sure seems to back up that premise locally. So we'll see how it works. But again, I, I don't know why we haven't moved on this sooner. Uh, over in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, we have uh, Joey Baloney, who you all who were present for the police brutality mega thread will recognize from the summer. Uh, the case against him has been temporarily thrown out. So from that story, it says, quote, fired Philadelphia police inspector Joseph Baloney Jr., or it might be Bologna, I don't know, I always pronounce it Bologna, and it fits for this particular officer, uh, who was arrested last summer for beating, I'm going to put in parentheses, the shit out of a Temple University student with a baton at George Floyd protests, was cleared of criminal charges Friday after a judge tossed out his case at a preliminary hearing. Municipal Court Judge Henry Lewandowski III ruled that the district attorney's office had not presented enough evidence to establish that Baloney's use of his baton against Evan Gorski, captured on video, amounted to a crime. I'm going to pause here. It was actually captured on at least two videos. I think there were three, but I know for sure there were two. And then the police tried to frame Gorski afterwards by saying he was on meth or some shit like that. Uh, Baloney's attorneys were quick to cast the decisions as a great victory. And leaders in the police union, which had fervently backed Baloney since his arrest, also cheered the ruling, saying Baloney had been unfairly villainized over the incident and its follow. Again, as a reminder, this was on fucking video. District Attorney Larry Krasner, who has the option to refile the charges against Baloney, says his office plans to do so very soon. Baloney's case, initially filed in June, became a near-immediate flashpoint in the discussion over police reform that peaked last year during demonstrations over Floyd's killing by Minneapolis police. Police first arrested Gorski, a Temple engineering student, and held him in custody for more than 40 hours on allegations that he had assaulted a police officer during protests on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. But Krasner's office dropped those charges and moved to charge Baloney instead after a video quickly spread across social media showing him striking Gorski as a group of officers confronted a crowd. Krasner said in a statement at the time that he had reviewed parts of the case himself, including the video, and he characterized his decision to pursue charges against Baloney, including aggravated assault, as an example of his commitment to even-handed justice. Gorski's attorney said at the time that he had been treated for injuries that required 10 staples to his head. Now, as is so often the case on incidents in this podcast, the video is actually worse than the story. So I'm going to go through the police brutality mega thread when I'm done. I will find you the links and I'm going to include them so you can see the video for yourself. Because what you're going to see is Joey Baloney just clubbing the shit out of multiple people. There's one spot where he's actually beating a woman. So I think he gets to Gorski after the fact, but he's just really in going to town on these fucking people. And he's the one where when he got charged, they had this laughable press conference where they were talking about how it was such an injustice and they were crying and everything else is totally fucking ridiculous. And they had the T-shirts that said baloney strong. Uh, so that's that guy. But I'll give you links in the show notes. Make sure to check it out. Over in Tennessee, we have the third rule of Fisk again. I feel like it's a recurring theme on the podcast today. Remember, there are no new stories, just new names and new jurisdictions. In this case, it's cops being fantastically stupid and then violating the Constitution to arrest somebody for sport. 
From that story, it says, quote, a man was charged after investigators say he created and shared a fake photo of people urinating on the grave of deceased law enforcement officer Sergeant Daniel Baker. Tennessee Bureau of Investigation worked with Dixon Police Department detectives to arrest Joshua Garten. The image was posted to a Facebook profile under the name of Joseph Calloway. It showed two men standing at a gravesite, urinating on the headstone with a caption that read, Just showing my respect to Deputy Daniel Baker from the hashtag Dixon Police Department. It gained the attention of law enforcement. Agents visited Baker's gravesite Friday morning and determined the photo was digitally manufactured. Their investigation led them to Garten as the person who made the image and shared it on social media. Pause and marinate on the stupidity of those two sentences. The use of the word agents, plural. They sent multiple people to the gravesite to look for piss. Had they done a three-second Google search... Using reverse image search, which is a thing, or Tenai, or Reversi, or any of a bazillion fucking apps that do this, they would have discovered that the image that was shared was actually the album artwork for a band called The Rights, and a single they had called Pissing on Your Grave. That is what this is. This guy didn't create it. It was already fucking there. All he did was copy the uh, officer's picture and post it in a black spot on the actual album cover that's intentionally like that. In two seconds, you could go take fucking Barney or Big Bird or whoever the fuck else you want and put it on there as well. This is how painfully stupid these police are. The Dixon Police Department is a bunch of fucking morons. They called in the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, who are a bunch of fucking morons. They spent your taxpayer money to go to a gravesite to look for piss when they could have done it in three seconds on a Google search and realized that, in fact... Yes, it was crude, but it was First Amendment-protected speech, which you're still allowed to do in this country, allegedly. Story continues, quote, Agents arrested Garten Friday afternoon and charged him with one count of harassment. He was harassing a dead body, apparently, and booked him into Dixon County Jail, where, because of his charge, he was being held on a $76,000 bond. Trump insurrectionists got released. As part of our federal system, you know, you have unsecured bonds released on your own recognizance, etc., etc. This guy is being held because he's poor. He's charged with a non-crime in violation of his First Amendment rights. Holy shit. I mean, if you're a taxpayer in Tennessee, you need to hold on to your wallet because there's going to be a Section 1983 lawsuit that this guy's going to win. There's no fucking qualified immunity defense here because this shit is so damn obvious. It's clearly established you have a First Amendment right to shit post on Facebook. It's a thing. In addition, you can't harass a fucking corpse. You can do other physical things to a corpse, but posting a picture on Facebook about a corpse is not harassing the corpse because, so far as I know, corpses don't use Facebook. You fucking morons. So the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, of course, posted on social media. They had a full-blown Twitter statement because that is the thing nowadays, and they predictably got fucking roasted. The idiocy runs so deep. So sorry, as I'm talking about idiocy, I keep dropping my papers here. That is how frustrating this shit is. Uh, over in Washington, our last two stories, both in Tacoma, we have new revelations in the death of Manuel Ellis, who was killed by police back on March 3rd as he was walking home from a convenience store. Uh, the police claimed that he was violent, even though there was bystander video from two different witnesses that proved the police lied. So that is the, that is the backstory for this story where it says, quote, at least two previously unidentified law enforcement officers participated in restraining Manuel Ellis, 
a black man who died in Tacoma police custody after his airways were restricted. Investigative records from the Washington State Patrol on Wednesday revealed. In addition to the four Tacoma officers who remain on leave during the investigation into Ellis's death, an off-duty sheriff's sergeant helped shove Ellis's leg into a hobble to hogtie him while Ellis lay handcuffed and prone on the pavement, and a fifth Tacoma police officer placed a spit guard over Ellis's head after Ellis complained he couldn't breathe. Soon afterward, Ellis was dead. The details released in the report Wednesday underscored the stark contradictions and conflicts of interest that have marred the investigation into Ellis's death. The involvement of the fifth Tacoma officer had never previously been revealed, and the sheriff's sergeant, whose involvement disqualified the Pierce County Sheriff's Department as the independent investigating agency, had not previously been named. Ellis, 33, was walking home from a convenience store on March 3rd with a snack when Tacoma police say they saw him trying to get inside a car as it turned at an intersection. Police said Ellis aggressively charged one officer, lifted the officer up, and violently hurled the officer to the ground. I'm going to pause. That is just such a ludicrous fucking thing to say in the first place. The rarity of that type of thing ever happening ever is fantastically close to non-zero. Like, it's just above zero, but pretty damn close to zero. So, anyhow, story continues, quote, but video of the incident filmed by two different eyewitnesses contradicted critical elements of the police narrative. That is a fancy media way of saying the cops lied their fucking asses off on their official reports that if you or I make a false statement as part of an official government document, we go to prison. These people do not. They get taxpayer money and then taxpayer-funded vacation, and then sometimes they get fired, and then they promptly get hired in another fucking department. Story continues, quote, Alice died at the scene from what the Pierce County Medical Examiner's Office later determined was oxygen deprivation caused by restraint. The medical examiner ruled Ellis's death a homicide, prompting officers Matthew Collins, Christopher Burbank, Messiah Ford, and Timothy Rankine to be placed on leave. The newly released records show Collins and Burbank were the first to encounter Ellis, followed by Ford and Rankine, who arrived when Ellis was already handcuffed. They relieved Collins and Burbank, and oh, sorry, they relieved Collins, and Burbank held Ellis down. The Washington State Patrol separately named the previously unidentified participants in Ellis's restraint as Pierce County Sheriff's Office Detective Sergeant Gary Sanders, who bent Ellis's leg while others were hobbling him, and Tacoma Police Officer Armando Farina, who applied the spit hood over Ellis's head. Neither has faced suspension. Both have been classified as mere witnesses and not targets of the investigation. Collins, Burbank, Ford, and Rankine were allowed to return to work just two weeks later, but were again placed on leave in June after the medical examiner's homicide ruling. They remain on paid leave. That is taxpayer-funded vacation. So that is that story in Tacoma. Surprisingly, the other story is also in Tacoma. It would be part of the police brutality mega thread if I were still keeping it going, but I'm not. But we're going to give you some video to look at. So from the story, it says, quote, the video footage is clear and hard to watch. A Tacoma police patrol car running into and through a group of pedestrians. The 48-second clip, shot shortly before 7 p.m., was shot in the downtown area. The patrol car, surrounded by groups of shouting people, revs its engine and suddenly surges forward, striking the group and running over at least one individual before driving on. A few notes here. One, it's not a car. It's an SUV. It is a patrol SUV. It is a massive fucking SUV. It's not one video. There are at least four. You get to see it from multiple vantage points. 
When we say the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. That is the first rule for a reason. It is the prime rule. It is never refuted. It always happens. And in this case, it's happened with four different vantage points. Story continues, quote, Mark, the eyewitness who shot the video and provided it to the News Tribune on the condition his last name not be used, saw five to six cars spinning in circles on South 9th Street between the intersections of Court A and Pacific Avenue. A Tacoma police car approached the area from Pacific and South 11th Street. Mark said the police unit took back streets and then came into the scene on South 9th Street from the east. Subquote, a lot of people swarmed in that direction, Mark said. They were intending to block him. I'm going to note, these people were in the crosswalk. Whether they should be or not is up to, you know, y'all to decide. But the fact is, these were pedestrians. The officer backed up about three feet before then suddenly accelerating forward, striking several people, knocking four to five of them to the ground, and it appears the vehicle then drives over somebody. And I'm going to note, it's not an appears. You actually can see from one of the four videos that, in fact, he completely runs over a guy. Tacoma Police Spokeswoman Wendy Haddow said police were notified shortly before 7 p.m. Saturday of street racers and a crowd of approximately 100 people blocking streets in the area. Haddow said the crowd began pounding on the windows of the patrol car. Subquote, the officer was afraid they would break his glass, she said, that prompted him to speed out of the scene for his own safety. Here's the thing. You're in an SUV, my guy. You don't have your safety to worry about. You were clearly able to back up because we can see you do it on the fucking video. You got your gun. This is all bullshit. All right? This is just typical police pablum bullshit that they always fucking do. Story continues. Quote, Tacoma police released a statement Saturday evening addressing the incident, which concluded with a quote from interim police chief Mike Ake, Ake, A-K-E is how it's spelled. Subquote, I am concerned that our department is experiencing another use of deadly force incident. I send my thoughts to anyone who was injured in tonight's event, and I'm committed to our department's full cooperation in the independent investigation and to assess the action of the department's response during the incident. Again, going back to the story we had earlier, if they're that fucking concerned, they would make changes so this shit doesn't continue to happen. It keeps happening. It is ridiculous that we are now in 2021, and I know my podcast has not been around weekly like it normally is, but the fact that just from this past week, we have 16 pages of stuff is ludicrous. It is absolutely ludicrous. So that is it for the criminal justice fuckery this week. As always, thank you to our show note sponsors, Anon, Trey Benfield, Ian Booth, Mary Jo Gustafson, J.H., Colleen Mahaney, Neil Richmond, Ari Rutenberg, and Michael Teal. Our Law 140 lovers, Lindsay Bowser, Casey Carmody, Erica Phillips, Helen Poston, and Joe Sevitz. The bumper music that you hear that is great is the track Drinks on Me by DJ's Carolina's Finest. By DJ's. By DJ Carolina's Finest. Uh, and as always, on behalf of myself, and even though Mike's not here, include him too, I uh, hope all of you have a great week. Stay safe. We will talk to you next Monday. Take care.